Good morning. For those of you who may be visiting, I'm Pastor Joy Inglesman, and I'm one of the associate pastors of this congregation, although I'm not employed here. Um, you'll see me around a lot, but I do a lot of different jobs as a pastor. Sometimes I call myself a multivocational pastor. It doesn't really fit on as lines where it asks you what your occupation is, but there it is. And one of the hats that I wear is as an endorsed worship coach of the Christian Reformed Church. So in that capacity, a few months ago, I was asked to facilitate a webinar on the topic, Public Worship and Reconciliation. Well, that's a big title, right? A lot of work to do. And you know what? I'm not an expert on that. So I had help. And I'm going to ask for the slide of the four faces that are the people that uh, I was able to interview, the two gentlemen that you'll see come up here on the screen on the left. And they had previously had an interview with these other two women. And so I went and watched that. And I learned so much from them. Let me tell you just a bit about each of these people. Dr. Rena Lloyd, she's in the top there, in the top corner. She lives in a place in the world where there has been over 600 years of conflict. And I know your brains are kind of wondering, where in the world could that be? She's from Wales. So now if you're a regular American, you might be thinking, Wales? this area, right? And that's the problem. Wales and England right there, little place right next to each other, but tussling under the surface, anger, hatred, things related to their language and their culture that have caused these deep divisions for how many? 600 years. And she began to wonder as a Christian, is there nothing that can be done? Does scripture not talk at all about how we can find forgiveness and reconciliation? And what are the steps we could take when our society is so broken? Could we do anything personally about the hatreds that we feel and the conflicts that we have with people? So she began to work on that, and her work caught the attention of people in Africa. And there has been a number of conflicts around the continent, but one you may well be aware of is one of the most brutal genocides of the modern era in Rwanda. And it was there that Pastor Joseph, in the bottom right left corner there, learned about her work, and he himself found a time of forgiveness for the sins he had committed and an opportunity to get rid of the shame that he felt and to begin to embrace those he had previously thought as enemies. Now he helps others. He instituted, along with others, the International School of Reconciliation located where in the world? Rwanda, Africa. Well, George DeVice is a missionary with the Christian Reformed Church, Resonate uh, Mission Agency, and he has served for many years in the Ukraine. And at the time, he was wondering what could be done about the stresses and strains in the culture of the Ukraine. The fighting of people who were ethnically Russian and ethnically Ukrainian and living right next to each other. And things were almost coming to blows. He wondered if only there could be some reconciliation. So some time passed. He went to this school and he learned about how reconciliation could happen. And he took those lessons back to his mission work in Ukraine and worked and worked. And yet we find ourselves today, he's back in the States hoping that a time will come again when it will be safe for him to go back because there's going to be even more work to be done on that topic. And then in the bottom right corner, we have Sabina Stoike. She's a pastor in the Hungarian Reformed Church. She also happens to be from the people group known as the Roma. You may 
may be more familiar with the term gypsy. And that term is not a positive term. It's something that people throw around and that and these people are persecuted and they are knocked around in their society. So she has experienced this kind of split in her among her own people and in Hungary, how difficult it is to be from the Roma people and to integrate yourself into society. So she, too, went to this International School for Reconciliation in Rwanda asking the question, if principles of the Bible can help people learn how to forgive, how to live with one another, how to find reconciliation in places like Wales where 600 years is a long time, in places like Rwanda where it's just violently crazy, and in places like Ukraine, yeah, right, we see what's going on there. I wonder if it could work in Hungary. So as I listened to these people, I began to wonder if this thing about reconciliation and forgiveness, if it applies in Wales and it applies in Rwanda and it applies in Ukraine and it applies in Hungary, does it apply here too? Could there be some lessons for us that we who live in a culture and society where things are so separated and we find voices that are so angry with one another, we may not yet be throwing bullets at one another, but it sure feels that the words we throw at one another feel like rocks and sticks and stones. And yes, those break our bones, but so do the horrific things we say about each other, dividing us from one another. And folks, it may be that we can't heal all of these huge rifts that we have in our society, in our politics, in our communities. But maybe we can start where the hatred starts, right here. The Bible story that you got to see today, it seems pretty clear on the topic, doesn't it? Was that a hard thing to understand? Nope. The king, representing God, forgives this enormous amount, hoping that others will do the same. But... The recipient of his mercy and grace and forgiveness does what? Throws that out the window and refuses to continue that blessing of grace and forgiveness. God has poured out so much for us, and one of our main jobs as Christians is to keep that flowing. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. I'll put that scripture up on the screen. God was doing what? Reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ, not counting our sins against us. Oh, phew. He has now done something. He's committed to us a ministry of reconciliation. Seems pretty simple. So why do we need a whole sermon about it? If, when, if you're my kids, you're saying, yep, I got it. I understand. Clock's ticking. We're done. But here's the thing, for me at least, I get it. I understand this. I just don't always live it out. I just don't quite feel like how to get this going in my own life, how to really make an impact in the area of forgiveness in how I live out. So if you don't mind, kids and the rest of you, let's stick around and talk about it a little bit. One of the things I noticed when I was listening to the interview with the four of them is they all used one word pretty frequently, that word was identity. And what they claimed was this. If 
people come to understand the true identity of their opponents, themselves, and God. That's the first big step toward reconciling when you find yourself in a tussle with people. So let's try that today. Let's try and take this baby step of learning where the identity is properly placed. And we're going to start with the opponent. Who's the real enemy when you find yourself in a tussle with people? How many Star Trek fans out there today? Oh, good. There's one or two. Thank you, Kyle. <laughs> Thanks. True confessions. I'm a Trekkie. I like the original with James T. Kirk. I like The Next Generation. My kids had to watch an entire summer binge-watching Voyager. And I've watched all of Deep Space Nine several times. Now, for those of you who don't know, Deep Space Nine is set on a space station. If you only watched the early version with Kirk, you might be surprised to learn that by now, with Deep Space Nine, the Federation and the Klingons are no longer enemies. They've made peace. They are allies together in the Federation. Ah, but there's a new enemy. It's the Dominion, along with the Cardassians and the Vorda and the Br Okay, you don't have to know all those details, but it is important to know there is a very real war going on. The Federation good guys are evil and danger. Captain Benjamin Sisko commands a diverse crew of the Allies, including Klingons and Ferengi and Trills and Bajorans and humans. They're all together on the good guy side. You might say they're on the same team. And Sisko is a fan of an ancient game called baseball. All right? One of the episodes, he gathers his crew together to play a friendly game against another group that is also part of the Allies. They're going to play against the Vulcans. They're on the same team, but now they're on different teams because they're playing baseball. And as you're going to see in this first video clip, the only one who knows anything about the game is Cisco. It's just a game, but that's not the way Commander Worf sees it. Let's see. A little louder, please. All righty. That's what Worf says. You can cut that now. We've got his comment. What? Death to the opposition! In true Klingon fashion, even though we're just playing a game for fun, Worf sees the other team as enemy. Death to them. Remember what I said, even in this illustration here, there is a very real war going on. There is a life and death struggle for the existence and the security of the galaxy. There are real enemies outside of the holosuite. But for that moment, Worf projects all of his anger and all of his hatred onto one of the allies, the opposing team, the Vulcans. They're not his real enemy. But folks, don't we sometimes do the very same thing? 
We forget to identify who the real enemy is when we find ourselves in conflict with others. We think it is the other person in the conflict. We assign to them the role of enemy and hate them for it. But the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians to be aware that right now, even as we live here, that we do have a real enemy. And he says this, we are in a battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and evil forces. It's still true today. And Peter says it this way, the devil prowls around seeking whom he may find to devour them. And one of his favorite tactics to do that is to drive wedges between his people, to find places that he can get in between and make us turn and look at one another and say, death to the opposition. That person's wrong. I'm right. That person is evil. I've been hurt by them. They are the enemy. I'm the good guy. And when someone does something to wrong us or they do something that isn't correct or we want to get after them, what is it that you really want to do to them? And we're going to find out in a second what Commander Worf has to say, but I need to set this scene up for you because in this scene, one of the Vulcans, the other team, has hit a long drive and they're running the bases. But he does something wrong. He doesn't touch home plate. The catcher for the Federation is a Ferengi kid, you'll see it by the ears, named Nog. He's never played baseball before and he has no idea what's going on or what he should do. Worf is about to tell him. Listen carefully. You can cut it. Do what? Find him and kill him. He didn't touch home base. As we think about the conflict situations we've been in, in our communities, maybe in our personal lives, I think we need to be very careful not to misidentify who the enemy is and what we want to do with them. The truth is, sometimes deep down in our hearts, that's what we want to do. Find him and kill him. Note that in the parable Jesus told, the people involved were all servants. They were all on the same level. Here's the king. Here's everybody else in the story. They're all on the same team. They're all on the same side. They're all connected. They live in the same community. They were not separated by some kind of artificial enemy thing going on here. But what did Victor do? What did that first servant do? When he saw someone who owed him a little bit, how did he see that person? Death to the opposition, find him and kill him, put him in jail. Immediately. You know, we laugh a little. These are great clips. They're kind of fun. We see they're just playing a game. But this isn't a game for us. We need to take our relationships seriously. And when there are fractures and divisions in our hearts, in our families, in our communities, we need to recognize that there is a powerful enemy behind all of that. There's some evil dealings going on under the surface. 
But folks, the people who are in front of us that we are calling our enemies, that's not the right name for them. We need to learn to see who they are, people created in the image of God, like we are. And secondly, then, who are we? Let's look at this next identity. If the identity of the enemy has to be established, the identity of us, we need to take a good hard look at this. We're going to spend a little more time here. Some of you may have heard the opening question to what we call the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a wonderful question and answer and goes like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's wonderful. And I would commend you to learn that and remember that in all times that you go through in life. But the next question may be something you're not as familiar with. Here it is. What must you know to live and die in the joy of that comfort you just spoke of? And the answer to that one is three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I'm set free from my sin and misery. And third, how I'm to thank God for such deliverance. That is our identity. It tells us who we are. I am a sinner, saved by grace, called to live with gratitude. This is how we come to know ourselves better, to tell the truth about who we are. C.S. Lewis said, only a bad person needs to repent, but only a good person can actually do it. And we're both of these things. We are sinners, otherwise known as bad people. We're bad people who need to repent because I do, I say things that are wrong. I willingly or negligently even participate in systems that are wicked and evil and cause harm and damage to people. Therefore, I need to say, I am sorry. I am a sinner. That is perhaps the most underused statement in the church today. We are too quick to forget that we too have sinned. And we don't know how to pronounce this word, sorry. We need to then stop doing those things and begin doing different good things. And how do we do that? We say, well, we can't because we're sinful. But wait, wait, wait. We are not good in of ourselves, but God gives us the goods, and he wants us to then live like that, live in gratitude. So that's the first thing about our identity we need to get straight. I'm a sinner, saved by grace, called to live in gratitude. You can remember that. But another area of our identity is not so much about me alone. That's what we tend to think here in our American Western thought. But here's another piece of it. We need to learn that part of our identity is that we belong in community with others. The subtext of this parable that Jesus told presumed a community. There's a king and servants who interact with one another. They work together. They take meals together. They're watching each other. And the king's forgiveness was intended to trickle down through Victor and impact the entire community. But that's not the way that servant saw the matter. You gotta think that he knew when he was throwing Janelle, the one person into jail, it's gonna impact that person's life, maybe their family. But was he really thinking about the impact that this had on everyone? Well, in the text, it actually says 
the other servants saw what happened and reported to the king. It's a little simple thing that's in there, but I think it says something. People were watching. They knew this wasn't the way that the forgiveness that they received was supposed to be handled. They went and told the king. Now, maybe that servant thought to themselves, what a bunch of tattletales. <laughs> Keep their business to themselves. This is my life. None of their business. But it was their business. They had a stake in the matter. Their lives, interconnected as they were with one another, were impacted by the king's generosity and by the servant's refusal to be merciful. People, even the micro-fractures that multiply in our own relationships, in our communities, and in our churches, those things have the power to cause catastrophic damage if they are left unchecked. Let me put that in the positive way, and we'll see it on the screen. Our participation in the cycle of mercy and forgiveness, receiving it and doling it out generously, has a direct bearing on the unity and the health of the community we're part of. This is part of our identity. To be in and among one another and to practice this receiving and giving of forgiveness. The third part of our own identity that we should think about is, and this is true, I believe, of all of us. If we're honest, we can all say we've been wounded at some point or another. Each of us has been hurt, sometimes by accidents of life, and sometimes by the direct intention of others. And we carry those scars of our wounds around with us, and sometimes those scars, if left untended, they start to grow even harder and thicker, and it forms this hard shell around our hearts. When we start to do the math, and we realize how much damage other people have done to us, how deeply they have hurt and wounded us, it's tempting for us to believe that there is no forgiveness enough in the world to reconcile with anyone. It's just too hard. But folks, that's where we've got to go to the identity of God. Because there is enough. When we ask the question, who is God? What is God's role when there's conflict, when there's separation, when there's hatred? God being sovereign and loving and creator and all-powerful, there's so many great characteristics of God, but this is the one we need to pay attention to here today. God is the source of all forgiveness and reconciliation. It resides in God's own being and God's heart. And he's already shown us how much mercy he's willing to dole out. Helmut Thielke said this, and this slide can stay up so we can get this in our hearts. God forgives us an accumulated debt that is so great, it buckled the knees of God's son. That's the extent 
of mercy and grace. This is a truth I began learning many years ago, but it seems to me I have to keep learning it. I have to keep on being reminded that God is the source of forgiveness, reconciliation, renewal, love, kindness, mercy. This word in Hebrew, chesed, God's loving kindness and mercy is put next to God's name so often so as to identify who our God is. But let me tell you how I first began to learn about this thing here. I was 23 years old, a few years back. I just started into my first job, and the person who supervised me said some things and did some things that were really damaging, really hurtful to me, personally and even professionally. What made it harder is we were both Christians. We went to the same church. He had a lot of power, and I was young and inexperienced. I did not know who I could trust. So I went to my knees, and I cried a lot, and I didn't know what to say. I was devastated by all that he had said and done to me. Somewhere along that way, I found myself praying an interesting prayer. I'm going to be honest with you. I do not recall that I came up with these words. I don't think I was that smart or that spiritual. So I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit gave to me what I needed at the time and was helping me take some micro steps toward learning about God's role in forgiveness and even mine. And as you're going to hear, because I'm going to tell you the prayer that I said, this prayer clearly fits the theme of this summer here at Connections Church. Let go and let God. This is pretty much what I said, and I didn't pray it just once, to be honest. I prayed this often. God, I don't know how to forgive this. Sometimes I didn't call him nice names, but I don't know how to forgive this guy. And to be honest, I don't really want to right now. You know you can say that to God? So God, forgive me for that attitude. But God, I know he needs to be forgiven. And I'm learning that all forgiveness comes from you in the first place. Even when I think I'm doing the forgiving, I'm actually borrowing from you. So for now, would you please forgive him so that he is forgiven and it's done? And then, God, would you please work in my heart until one day I'm able to release him with full forgiveness from me? I've had to pray that prayer for other situations many times in my life. And what it reminds me is that the person I'm at odds with is not the devil himself. And that I myself am in great need of forgiveness and mercy. And that the source, the only source for all of that is the God of mercy and love who sent Jesus to prove that love for us and to call us back to himself. People, please understand I'm not preaching at you today. I'm really working on this in my own life, and 
I know that this is not an easy thing to do. We can have three-point sermons all we like. We can perfectly understand our identities, and it is still going to be hard. And there's still going to be unanswered questions. I've got a few. What about justice? Shouldn't there be consequences for what people do? What if people never acknowledge that they did wrong? I don't think I have to forgive them if they never acknowledge it. And what if I do forgive them and they do it again and they take advantage of forgiveness? Those are great questions you might add to the list. And I'm not going to answer them today. I think there are ways we could have conversations about them. I think there are understandings we could come. But really, this is about reminding us that questions aside, we don't get to escape our own participation and responsibility in this. Sometimes we just ask the questions to put off the inevitable of what this very simple parable was all about. What are we going to do when we're walking down the road and we see someone who's wronged us? Will we remember what we've been forgiven? We live this life of reconciliation. We are called to it because of the heart of God. Reconciliation begins at the foot of the cross where God gave us his only son, Jesus, so that we would be saved. And we are now heading into a time of communion to remember that together.